Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. How are you doing today? It's such it's been like such a beautiful weekend. So I'm super, super excited. Today I get to wrap up a series that Dallas kicked off at the beginning of this month um, called Follow. Um, and if it's been a series you've been following along, I've heard from many of you who um, was like, this has been really powerful for me. Um, even last week, an email, someone uh, not even in the state who was watching, it's like, man, this thing, was, it was so, so strong. Um, and this series really is, like I've said the last couple of weeks, the month of August tends to be our lowest attendance. It's, we know people are scattered everywhere as they kind of like try to take the last getaway before we can't get away anymore with the kind of the fall calendar kicking back in. And so we like to intentionally kind of use that month as a way to help people who are processing how to grow in their faith and what does it look like at the core of Christianity to get stronger and to grow deeper in it. And so um, that's really what this series has been about because if you go back to the very beginning of the Christian movement, the, it began with an invitation from Jesus to a group of people with the word, follow me. This was the very first word of the Christian movement. And to understand Christianity, to, to really understand it and to live it well, you have to understand this word, follow. So over the last three weeks, we've been processing more and more what does that look like, kind of tangibly, practically, and then even kind of at a, like a grander level. And today, I want to wrap up the series by um, pressing into one of the most challenging aspects, one of the biggest barriers and to start off, I want to tell you about a computer issue from 2005 Windows XP. All right, there was a series of hard drives. This is a hard drive. Um, most people have never seen what a hard drive looks like, but back in the day, prior to the technology that's common now on our phones and our computers, you essentially had what was a glorified uh, record album. It was a very thin, very th like fast-turning, uh, slightly metallic disc, and a little tiny like reading and writing um, pen that would just kind of float above it. At this specific model um, rotated around 5,400 RPMs. So these things would run really fast. And um, Windows XP um, had these installed on numerous laptops. And what we didn't know until just this past week, actually, was there was a massive issue inside of this hard drive that was kind of buried. The engineers never made it known until just recently. And the, the issue was this hard drive inside of certain Windows XP computers, if exposed to Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation from 1989, would have a systematic, massive failure that would kill the computer. No joke that there was a whole group of large, heavy, bricky laptops from 2000. Because remember in 2005, laptops back then, they, they put off about a million degrees heat. Like the, they were the last thing you would ever want them on was your lap, right? And they weighed about 75 pounds. And, and so... But these unnamed laptops, if you played Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation or happened to be in the proximity of someone playing Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation, the computer would just die. 
And the engineers who discovered it thought they had fixed it because they put frequency kind of inhibitors in the speakers so that if you ever owned one of these monstrosities and decided, man, I just need some Rhythm Nation. You know what I mean? Because we all know what it's like driving down the road and be like, Rhythm Nation. That's what I need right now. So if that happened to be you back in 2005 and you hit play on your Napster, right, because you downloaded it illegally, then, like, your computer wouldn't die because they actually intentionally embedded some things to stop Janet Jackson's glory from being fully felt and heard. But what they didn't do was they didn't stop it from coming into the computer. But fortunately, because this song was released in 1989, we didn't have this massive failure. But we had an issue bigger than Y2K sitting there in 2005, and none of us even knew about it. You walked in to coffee shops and to offices, and all of your work could have been erased if someone had woke up and be like, it's a Janet Jackson day. I mean, it's just amazing, right? But the reason I think this is such a great starting point is because I think there is something very much like this computer bug that can be present in our lives that can hinder us in our ability to follow. And if you and I are not aware of it, then we might just decide we want to have a Janet Jackson day and not even aware of what it can do inside of us. And this is not just me. God was tuned in to that long before we ever were. In fact, it Going back to the very beginning, the invitation to follow is, is not just something that Jesus originated. This is at the core of our faith. You see, Christianity is, in kind of theological circles has been called Judaism fulfilled. Because Christianity was not a new religion. It theologically was the belief that Judaism had some core promises, the promised land and the promised one. That's an oversimplification of Jewish theology. But those two drivers were at the core of Jewish theology. And the idea was that Jesus was the fulfillment of the promised one. And so Christianity was the outgrowth of some promises present in Judaism when God first invited a group of people and their forefather to follow him. And so the first five books of what we call the Christian Bible is some of the oldest religious writings in human history. Um, we call them uh, in kind of religious scholarly circles. Uh, one of the ways it gets referred to is the Pentateuch, the first five books. It was the core of the Jewish faith and is the very foundation of the Christian faith. And one of the most important books in the Pentateuch, the first five, is the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, Here's a Jeopardy answer to the question that you may one day get. And I only expect like 25% of the earnings off of it, okay? But here it is. The Bible book that Jesus quoted most in his ministry was the book of Deuteronomy. He quoted the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book in all of Jewish scripture. Because it, he it held an outsized influence. The book of Deuteronomy is essentially a collection of speeches. Really important speeches that Israel heard right before they went into the promised land, the first kind of core promise that was present in the Jewish faith. And so naturally, this is at the end of Moses' life. He's giving these speeches because he really wants to set Israel up to, for success because he's not going in to the promised land with them. He's going to die. And so he delivers a series of speeches, and he begins with a speech 
that takes them back 40 years. And it's that speech that he uncovers the biggest Janet Jackson computer bug issue of our faith. One that you and I are susceptible to even today. He kicks off by saying, hey, remember then as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went towards the hill country of the Amorites through all the vast and dreadful wilderness that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barna. I know that just screams at you and me. Oh, yeah, I totally remember that. But this is 40 years of wandering summed up in a sentence, essentially. It's like, hey, remember 40 years ago when we used to be a people before we became a nation and we were an enslaved people and we were in Egypt and they beat us and they used us to build their empire. Remember how God delivered us? Then we had to walk through this horrible desert because we were headed somewhere. And we got there and we discovered like on the threshold, it's this group of people who were scary and big, and, but we'd already come through the desert wilderness because the word wilderness, for us, oftentimes we think of forest. If you're like, oh, what'd you do this weekend? Man, I got lost in the wilderness. You think woods. But in the Middle East, when you heard the word wilderness, it was desert. So this is what the word wilderness meant. He's like, so this is 40 years ago. And he's talking to the kids that are now adults. He's like, your parents walked this journey. And remember, I said to, to them and to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it. As if the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. He was like, remember 40 years ago, we got to the same place, deja vu. And I said to you as we gathered, we're about to go into the promised land. And you guys said, then, oh, we have an idea. Let's send a small group of people to kind of scout the land, survey the land. Because there wasn't a Google Maps. There wasn't a Waze. So how do we navigate our way through? Well, let's just send 20, like 12 people through and get that clarity because we've never been here before. And I was like, well, that's a great idea. Seemed good to me. So I selected 12 of you, one from each tribe because the, the people of Israel was 12 tribes. They left and went to the hill country and they came to the valley of Eshcol, which was a, a, a valley of grapes and wines and, and they explored it. And what they would actually call this area was the land flowing with milk and honey. And which is kind of a weird phrase, right? Like if you went to some beautiful area of the world and they were like, how was it? You're like, man, it was like, a, it was like land flowing with milk and honey. You might be like, oh, is that, they have a Whole Foods there? Like what, what is that? Like what is a land flowing with milk and honey? Well, you get milk from goats. Okay, kind of contextually. And for goats to be producing that much milk, it means that there must be vast amounts of land to pasture them on. So vegetation and fresh water. So this must be a really green, lush land for there to be an excess of milk available. Remember, these people have been spending time in the wilderness, in the desert. And it's flowing with milk and honey. And what does that mean? Well, honey requires bees that require flowers. And most of us don't realize the amazing amount of work that goes into producing honey. Thousands and thousands and thousands of flower visits have to happen for honey to, to happen. 
And there's so much that it's flowing. They're just everywhere. So these people are like, man, this place is amazing. And so they took the fruit of the land, they brought it down, and they said, it's a good land that the Lord, our God, is giving us. It's great. It's grand. But, it's like, remember, 40 years ago? But, you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear, they say. The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Anakites are not some race of people from Star Wars, even though it sounds like that. The Anakites were people who were really, really tall. They were really, really, you have the, the average male height in this period of history, in human history, malnutrition was a big issue, um, was probably around 4 foot 11. So imagine a four foot eleven guy meeting a six foot four guy. I mean, they're they're giants, and this is what they're doing. They're they're encountering a group of people who are growing up in a land where they're not malnutritioned. They're thriving, and they're massive, both genetically and environmentally. These people are poised to be so much taller than what the average Jewish man would have been coming out of like centuries of oppression and malnutrition. And they're terrified. The walls of the city go up to the sky. They're like, there's no way we can go. Like, man, we're just all going to die. This is where they land. This was 40 years ago. The children who were there that day are now the adults, and all the adults that were there are now dead. And Moses is reminding them of that moment because that moment was the most consequential moment in their life history. Because of this, their parents would decide to not go into that land. And they would spend the next 40 years of their life circling roughly 100 miles of desert wilderness over and over and over you think coming into a city and being in a holding pattern for 30 minutes flying in circles is bad? Imagine 40 years of that walking around in a desert. It's like, oh, there's that bush again. There's that rock again. Hot, harsh wilderness for 40 years. One decision had that level of consequence. And Moses is intentionally reminding them of this because he understands that for this group, they have a choice. If they're going to follow God, it means they can't follow what their parents did. And so this is why he's intentionally reminding them of this moment. Because he knows, look, we all experienced the last 40 years of wandering because of a decision and what followed it. So now you're in a new generation. You're again back where your parents were. And you have a choice to make. What are you going to decide? So what is, why is he telling them all this? Well, actually, he gives them a little bit of a clue back at the very beginning of what derailed his parents, their parents, and what can threaten to derail them too. 
at the very beginning of the speech, he says, I, I told you, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And discouraged doesn't feel like it warrants that level of call out. But Moses, I think, under the wisdom of God, understood something that you and I can miss. That the discouragement could actually derail their ability to step into what God had for them. And not just that, actually present in the passage is essentially an autopsy of what discouragement comes from. If you were to perform an autopsy on discouragement, what you would find is there's usually four different pieces that can give rise. If discouragement's a fruit, then think of it as these are the four different roots. You can have frustration, right? You keep bumping your head up against something long enough, you start to get discouraged a little bit, doesn't you? You can have fatigue. I mean, I don't know about you, but <clears throat> the smallest things can set me off when I haven't slept well. Like last night, I had trouble sleeping. So from 1.30 to 3.30, I was just sitting on the couch. And you know it's bad when you're watching YouTube videos on quantum mechanics to fall asleep. Like that's where I was last night, just full, full disparity. Like, uh, I mean, gluons. And like, I mean, it was ridiculous. And that's, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to fall. You are going to fall asleep, Chris. You're going to watch this video, and you're going to learn something. Right? And I'm, I'm sitting there on the couch. I hate being, I, I'm not a person who falls asleep on the couch. And I'm sitting here. So I like already know today I'm going to be like prone. Like something's probably going to happen to me and I can get really discouraged by it. And it's because fatigue. It's why like I, I, if I get a chance to be around a parent of someone who's got a newborn, I want to be like, look, it's not over. You were doing a great job. You're not a failure. Keep, keep moving forward. Because one day, that little life vampire that you birthed, you'll, you'll, you'll get through it. Like in 18 to 25 years, it's going to be all right. Just keep moving forward, right? Failure. After you experience something where it didn't work out the way you thought it would, discouragement's a temptation, or fear. If you did the autopsy of discouragement, it's usually one of these four. And these four, all four of these things are present in this passage. So it's a supercharged moment. And I think God understood that one of the biggest potential derailing forces in our ability to follow him faithfully and to have a great marriage or to be a great parent or to in our finances or in our pursuit of a job or walking through hard times is this thing right here creeping in to our lives. And so he spends the very opening speech of one of the most important books, of some of the most important speeches Moses ever delivers, and he tells them discouragement is your biggest challenge to follow. And I think it's because of the genius of God. So there was this study done, super fascinating. They brought people into the room, and like any good psychological study, people had no clue why they were there. And they were probably actually misled why they were actually there. And they were asked two simple questions. The first question was, do you feel like you're a lucky person, a fortunate person, a blessed person? Insert whatever hashtag you would insert about that. 
And they would answer yes or no. And then they would ask them a second, very seemingly random follow-up. They would say, hey, here's a magazine. We want to make a bet with you, give you some money. Do you think if we give you 60 seconds, you can count the number of pictures in this magazine? And uh, some would say yes, some would say I don't know, because like any magazine, there's a lot of random photos, right? And the researchers knew 60 seconds wasn't long enough. But what was fascinating was what happened after the 60 seconds. The first group who said, nope, not blessed, hashtag not fortunate, hashtag not one of the lucky ones, right? Their range of picture guesses were absurdly low to absurdly high. And then the second group, right, the hashtag blessed life, right, hashtag favor, like those people, right? They all came back with the number 48, which is strikingly specific. And 48 was the right number of pictures in the magazine. Somehow, a disproportionate, almost all of the fortunate ones knew exactly how many pictures were in the magazine. And almost none of the hashtag not lucky in life people got it. And here's the kicker. Here's how it happened. Like any good psychological experiment, there was a really devious trick involved. Around the third page was a box right in the middle and big bold font that says, stop counting, there are 48 pictures in this magazine. And what they realized was that the people who had a disposition of discouragement, it literally distorted how they saw their life. The ones who for various reasons, thought they were fortunate, hashtag blessed, whatever they want to call it. The ones who were encouraged could see better and could see more. But the ones who were discouraged could not. Discouragement distorts. It skews. It warps. Right? It causes you to wave the white flag. It, waves, it causes you want to surrender and say, it's never going to change. It's never going to happen. I'm never going to find someone. I'm never going to have my Romeo, which is a horrible illustration because that was like the most jacked up relationship ever. So I'm like, I was like, it's like, wanting a Romeo a good thing? I'm like, no, it's a horrible thing. You failed in life if you found Romeo, right? Like, no to Romeo, hashtag, no to Romeo, right? Like, just start that movement now. Right, but this... <clears throat> It just feels permanent. And you see this with Israel, right? They're like, these people are giants. We'll never beat them. Their walls go up into the sky. And the distortion doesn't just stop circumstantially. The distortion reaches all the way up to the character of God. They're like, God brought us out of Egypt to kill us over here. They're saying that mess out loud. These people watched the Red Sea part. They watched miraculous things happen. Their parents watched God deliver them from a nation that had crushed them and oppressed them. And their conclusion is uh, God did all of that just to bring us out here to kill us with these random people. Mm-hmm. 
but that's what discouragement does. It distorts. It skews. And if we're being honest, I don't know about you, but I got like a PhD in discouragement. Right? Like I know how to step into any situation, no matter how good it looks, and I can assassinate the hopefulness. Like, well, have you thought about this? I mean, I'm the person who can start to feel a little tingle. I'm on the couch at 1.30 in the morning, and I'm going from quantum mechanics to, like, WebMD, and I got, man, I got menopause. <laughs> Didn't even know that was possible. You know, you just start Googling, and you land over there. Because I'm good at discouragement. And my guess is you're probably too. Because you want to move out of that addiction, or you want to... Help that relationship get a little bit stronger. Then it's like it happens again. And it happens again turns into it's never going to happen. And it just creeps in and it starts to shape and distort. And Moses understood that discouragement, if inherently the Christian faith is about following, you can't build you can build off of, but you can't rely on where you've come from because it's about where you're going. And that's why discouragement's so dangerous. Discouragement won't take the step away from you that you've already taken, but it will take away the step that you could take. And this is why Moses is doing it. So the question I think naturally is like, man, how do you give the discouragement the diss? How do you push that thing out of your life? And practically speaking, in this passage, I think there are two general principles. I just want to point out really briefly that aren't even at the core of what I want to talk about as we wrap up. But to understand, to pull the principles out, you almost need to go old school with photography. Remember back in the day, if you ever, like in high school, I took a photography class and we'd spend hours in a smelly old dark room. And your goal was the first step in getting a picture was you had to get the negative, which was the opposite of what you actually wanted to get. And that negative is what you see in this passage. It's the opposite. You see them say, but you were unwilling. You grumbled in your tents. It's an interesting statement. Because they went back, and the inner dialogue, and the self-talk, and the perspective allowed them to create a space where they could grumble and they could complain and they could nurture this interview. And I think one of the critical things that we have to be conscious of if we're going to give discouragement the diss is that internal view that we foster and actually intentionally trying to shift that view. That, that could look like just in intentionally exposing ourselves to different perspectives about the situation it could be literally just taking a walk. If you spend 40 years wandering around in a desert, the inside view of your tent never changes. I mean, that's super discouraging. It's always the exact same. So changing your view can help. Intentionally reflecting. I, I actually keep in my Evernote, which I'm a, kind of a prolific note taker, um, I, if I have an encouraging moment, I put it in there. If somebody gives me a note, I take a picture of it and stick it in my Evernote so that on the hard days I can go back and read it. Because like the discouragement stuff, man, it screams at you. You're a failure. 
It screams at you, you're never enough. You'll never be different. But then you go back over here and you read it and you're like, no, actually, that's not as true as it feels. It's that shifting the view. And another one that's interesting is our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. It's not just about changing the view that can help you discourage, like give that the dis. I think it's also becoming intentional about the who in your life too. They were listening to a group of people who were doing nothing but reminding them of fear and stirring up the discouragement inside of them. And some of us, I just want to give you permission because no one ever gave you permission. You thought the people in your life were the people that you were stuck with in your life. And that little energy vampire that you have coffee with or that texts you sometimes, you didn't know that you didn't have to engage with them and give them everything that you have inside of you. There are some people in your life who are probably just leeching onto you. And every time you walk away from them, you just feel more discouraged. If there are people in your life who make you feel worse about who you are, who make you slow down in your pursuit of God and leave you feeling more and more discouraged, I would encourage you to to maybe minimize, maybe to reduce, but definitely replace some of those time slots with people who actually encourage you. There are people out there, you probably know them. Some of you are them. Who when you get around them, they make you feel better about you, about life, about what you can do, about what's possible. You know, there's people like when you sit down with them, when you leave, you just want to like kick stuff on the way out of the door because you feel so fired up. You're like, oh, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm going to punch that thing in the face. (laughs) And it's it's just who they are. Why? Because they're encouraging. They're people who pour out, not sit over there like, pour in, pour in. I need, I need. Complain, complain, complain. I mean, people who always complain, let's just, can I say this out loud? It's the worst. Like, I've never texted my wife and been like, she's like, how's your day? I'm like, oh, it was awesome. I just spent an hour and a half with someone who all they did was complain. I feel so alive. No. So it's the changing the who, too. And, and just in case you think I'm all about you, it's not, it's not all about you. You need to have people who pour in, but one of the best things you can do is not be a person who's always expecting to be poured into, but to be a person who pours out to, who pours out, who serves, who gives, who sacrifices. Those people, it's the paradox of the Christian faith. The people who often pour out the most are the ones who have the most inside. I mean, some of you love this church not because of me. It's because of the kids' environments we have. Because there are people who are not paid. None of those people are paid. They show up. They sacrifice their time, their schedule, and they pour out into your kids. And they don't all have great weeks. They had hard weeks, too. But they're crawling around on their knees and they're laughing and they're joking and they're asking your kids about their week and are they excited about school? Because they're pouring out. And one of the most life-giving things is to live your life in a posture that just pours out. It's rewarding. Because it's about the who. Not just the who around you, but who 
You are too. And this is some of the things that just naturally rise up. But actually the most powerful part about the antidote to discouragement and how we effectively follow is what Moses says right next after this. Amen. This. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. Them being the Amorites, the massive people with swords and shields, right? Like the Spartans who are ready to fight and crush them at any minute. He's like, don't be, dis- don't be terrified. Don't be afraid. The Lord, your God, who is, going t- who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt. I don't know if you picked up on the word selection there, but there is some repetition. The God who is going before you, who will fight for you as he is, did for you in Egypt. Before your very eyes and in the wilderness. And then this. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. All the way you went until you reached this place being a parent's interesting right i think one of the most like i used to, i grew up i watched macgyver right he was like the, the 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 angel with the mullet um and um who could like fix things with like toothpicks and duct tape and stuff right um and i feel like the closest moment i've ever had to disarming a bomb is being a parent of an infant who's fallen asleep in a car and it's nighttime. Because you, you want to get that child from their five-point restraint system that you appreciate all the time until that moment when you're like, why does this have to be that complicated? Why is my child bolted into this seat? And you're like, I mean, surgical precision, right? You're like, beep, beep, beep. And you're like sweating because you, you don't want to wake the child up because you know if you wake them up, the second wind's going to hit and you're not sleeping. So you slowly kind of pull them out, and then you, like, pop their head on the door because they're just limp. And you don't even know, but somehow a limp baby weighs even more than they do when they're not limp. And you're, like, gingerly kind of carrying them. And Lord forbid there's steps in the house that you got to navigate because you're like, and it really is. I mean, I'm sweating like a bomb's going to go off. And then it's even worse when you're like, man, we got to change them. And then you're trying to decide, like, do you keep them in the Halloween costume? Or you, like, put them in their PJs, and then you, like, you kind of lower it in. And one of the best feelings, like, no joke, like, I just disarmed a bomb, is when you walk out of the room and you close the door and you're like, yes. Because, like, life has just handed you 30 extra minutes where you don't have to, like, finagle and convince a small child to go to sleep. You're like, whoo, whoo. And then they wake up the next morning, and here's the weird thing. It, it doesn't even seem to phase them. And I'm like, man, if I ever, like, blinked and I woke up the next morning and I was in a completely different place and somebody had taken off my clothes and changed me into something else, I wouldn't feel comfortable by that. I wouldn't feel restful in that. I'd be freaked out. be like, where am I and what they do to me? Right? Like, I'm just a phone call away from, like, some Discovery Channel where I'm like, I think I got abducted by aliens. And they changed my underwear, and I still don't know how I feel about that. Like, I mean, it's just completely messes with you. But it's so normal for a kid, and we've all done it. 
and yet, here's what's missing. God uses this illustration. And I think even as parents or as people who've ever experienced this moment, we can still miss what he's actually doing there. Because this is 40 years, 40 years since the first moment happened where they made a decision that sent them wandering. And remember, these are all the children of those parents, children who are now adults. There was only one generation that grew up in the wilderness, and it was this generation. I don't know about you, but if you've ever walked around a theme park or downtown with a small child, you know eventually they end up on your back, they end up in your arms, if you didn't bring a stroller. And that's like with shoes on in a modern world. But they're in the wilderness, a harsh, hot, no gravel roads, just dirt. And imagine a toddler's legs walking through a wilderness. So I think every one of these people who were listening that day had very intimate, very deep, very full memory banks of having to be carried because they had grown up their entire life walking through some of the hardest, harshest environments you can grow up as a kid. And God's reminding them, hey, remember this 40 years, how hard it was when you were little to navigate the wilderness? And what did your parents do? They'd pick you up. They'd carry you. They would help you. So actually, the last 40 years hasn't just been your parents carrying you. It's been me carrying you. And of all the images that God could have used, there's something profound about this one. Because you have to remember, like, we, we know of Jesus. We, we know his love. We know God's intimacy. We know God's willingness to carry stuff for us. But they didn't. The idea of an intimate God who is willing to carry them like a child had to hit them like a ton of bricks. He's like, your parents distorted who I was. But don't forget, don't forget that it wasn't just your parents carrying you, it was me too. Like the character of who I am is like a father who carries his son all the way, all the way you went until you reached this place. This place, Kadesh Barna, which had been one of the most devastating, regretful places in Israel's history. A place of regret, a place of despair, a place of the decision is done, it's over. He's like, I brought you back here to tell you who I am. To remind you, if you've got breath in your lungs, you're not done. To remind you that I know you've walked through the wilderness, but it was me carrying you through the wilderness. I know you've, you've felt the pain, but it's been my presence who's guided you through it. I know it feels hard right now, but there is a promised land, and I've been taking you there that way all the time. And here's the thing. Your parents lost sight of who I am, and they spent 40 years paying for that. I don't want you to miss it. But as a father, when I read this, there's a part of me 
that I think is embedded in the story. See, it's really hard to, to grieve what you never had. The parents never knew what they didn't have. The parents never knew what they missed up and passed on. Their discouragement caused them to lose the way. And a couple weeks ago, I was processing through my own discouragement and walking through my own seasons of some stuff. And I remember looking at Jenny when we were having this conversation. And, I, and Henry, who's my two-year-old, now three, was um, coughing in the other room. And I said, Jenny, remember the seven years of tears of wanting to have a child and we couldn't? Remember the seven years of pain and how we thought it never was going to happen? And then it did. And it was, it was this moment, it just, I don't know, it was this really weird counterfactual thing. I was like, what if we had given up at any one of those moments before that moment? I was like, the thing, the tragedy is if we'd have given up at that moment before any of the, before this happened, we'd have never known what we'd have missed out on. We'd have just thought it was a story of breakdown and I'm not enough. But I was like, tonight I got to rock and sing to that miracle. A seven years miracle. And it's not a theoretical, it's a crazy little tiny boy who's got a name, who holds my hand when we cross the street. And I think for some of us, you need to know that there is more at risk in the future in you giving up than it looks like right now if you did. Some of you just think you would be surrendering and waving a white flag and you just be, and all you're walking away from is what you see around you. But I'm telling you, if you walk away, you're not walking away from what you see. You're walking away from where he's taking you, from where you're going. If I'd have given up, I'd have never known Henry Causey. I'd have never known the moments and the personality and the joy it is being his father specifically. I'd have never known any of that if I'd just given in to everything in me that's saying, you're not enough, it hurts too much, quit trying. Stop it, doesn't matter. It's never going to happen. That marriage is never going to make it. That teenager of yours is never going to have a breakthrough. You're never going to find relief from that pain. Wave the white flag and just surrender. And you would not just be walking away from what you see now. You're walking away from everything you've got. And I just want you to know there is more. And one of the most powerful things God does when he invites us in this moment and following him is those moments when following him is just a step of faith. When you cannot see when you do not know and you don't even know where you're headed and all you have is, there, is the understanding of who's taking you there and sometimes one of the most powerful things in those moments is to stop looking around and start looking up
to start worshiping, to start singing, to start praising, to start believing that God's not done. You've got breath in your lungs. Like, look, I wrote this stupid line down. I wasn't going to say it, but I'm going to say it to you, right? You got your belly button from your mama, but you got your breath from God the Father. And if you've got breath in your lungs, then that means God the Father is not done with you, even if you feel done with you, even if you feel done with them, even if you feel done with what you're trying to get through. He's not done. And so today we want to wrap up this series, we want to wrap up this message by kind of introducing you to a, a new song that I really hope you can't get out your head this week. I hope you can't get out your heart. I hope you can't even shake it. You wake up in the middle of the night and you, you wake up singing it like I do to some stupid Peppa Pig song sometimes. Right? Fruits and vegetables keep us alive. Always remember to eat your five. Like 3 a.m., I wake up and that song's in my head. And I'm like, oh my goodness, can I die? Because like if I had a national secret, I'd have given it to you. Right? But I hope that that's what it happens to you. That this song gets inside of you and you're reminded that there is another direction to look when all you want to do is look down. And it's to look up. And to keep trusting. To keep walking. And to keep following. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the promise and the power of who you are and for what you do. For what you've done, Jesus, through the cross that reminds us that there is nothing that you wouldn't do to chase after us even when we wanted nothing to do with you. And thank you that you are not some vague, theological, philosophical, abstract deity in the sky, but that you are a God who knows us, loves us, and like you said, is one who carries us in the moments when we can't even walk ourselves. God, thank you so much for the ways you've carried me through seasons I didn't think I could make it. God, thank you for the way that you've carried some of the people in this room who I know their stories, some of the people who are online who I know their stories, that you've carried them through some dark, dark times. And I pray in all of us, God, for those who are in the middle of the valley, for the ones who are standing on the mountaintop, and for everything in between, that you would well within us in our last five minutes together an incredibly strong, powerful amount of gratitude for who you are, for what you've done, for how you love us. And that that gratitude for who you are, God, and the grace that you've given us would mark and flow into every area of our lives. And with gratitude, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So I want to invite you to.